Hi, I'm Ben Robinson. I'm responsible for all those hero collectorships that you may have seen, uh, and also for a lot of Star Trek books. And you're listening to Track Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. I collect a lot of different things, many of which are typically related to the fandoms I like. These products made me deeper invested into those series, and I'm not just speaking monetarily, I'm speaking mentally and on an emotional level too. Now when it comes to Star Trek, the main things I collect are toys, comics, and books. And our guest today does two of those three things. Today we're speaking with Ben Robinson. He's the head of Hero Collector. Now, Hero Collector is a part of a British company called Eagle Moss, and that branch is probably known best for their diecast starships from all of the Star Trek series. They also make products for Doctor Who, Battlestar Galactica, Harry Potter, Marvel and DC Comics, Space 1999, The Orville, Ghostbusters, The Alien Films, and some other franchises out there. Ben is the person responsible for the Star Trek Starships collection, and is also pretty much an expert on Star Trek. He's been writing and co-writing books about the series since the 90s, and he's published many, many books on all of the shows. And this holiday season, Eagle Moss has several new books from different authors, including the Star Trek Voyager A Celebration 25th Anniversary book, which was in fact written by Ben, and some others from different writers that we're going to discuss a little bit later on. Ben's an interesting guest in many ways because he could be seen as an originator of the Trek Untold format. He's interviewed all the stars on all of the Trek series for, of course, all the magazines and books he worked on. But he's also chatted with a lot of the lesser-known character actors, the -the behind-the-scenes production crew, the visual effects and post-production teams, and pretty much everyone in between. Ben's written some very well-known books about the franchise, and if you've never read his work before, I'm pretty sure by the end of this interview, you're going to want to pick up a few of the books that we discussed today. And if you already subscribed to any of the Hero Collector subscription services for Starships or have bought any of those products in the past, you're definitely going to listen today because we've got a few bits of news dropping in this episode. So get your ears and your wallets ready. We've got a pretty interesting show today. But before we jump into today's interview, I want to ask you if you're following us yet on social media. If you're not, you can check out Trek Untold on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we update there constantly. It's the best way to find out who this week's guest is going to be in advance and also potentially ask them any questions when we offer that option. So that's Trek Untold, one word, no spaces, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to take a look at some of the merchandise we have there, which includes t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and all sorts of other things. We'll be releasing new designs constantly, so make sure to keep an eye there if you'd like to support this show and show off to your friends how much you like it. You can also directly support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold to become a Patreon. But most important of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast, and if you're listening to it on iTunes, Spotify, Google, or any other audio forms, make sure to leave a review and a rating and drop some stars if you can. And if you're watching the YouTube version, please don't forget to subscribe to Nerd News Today, the channel that you're watching this on, and give the video a thumbs up. And of course, while you're at it, feel free to comment there and let me know what you think of this week's guest. Subscribing, leaving ratings, leaving comments are all some of the most important things you can do to help this podcast continue to grow and ensure that more people find out about this show. And if you're already following us or supporting us on Patreon or have bought some merch, a big, big thank you for doing that or offering your support in whatever way that you can. Thank you for the help. There's a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, and I'm very grateful that you've chosen to listen to this one today. 
I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D printed Star Trek inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. Whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. Now, without further ado, let's beam up today's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now joining us on the opposite side of the line here, all the way from the UK, we have the head of Hero Collector himself, the fanciest title I've ever said on this show. We have Mr. Ben Robinson. Ben, how are you today? I'm fine. I'm wondering about my fancy title now. But yeah, I'm good. <laughs> I wish I had a title as fancy as that. I'm just the host of the show, but I'm not the head of the show. So I'm not quite there yet. But yeah, thanks for joining us. And you're all the way in the UK, correct? I am, yes, yes. Uh, what just part of England are you in? Uh, so I'm just outside London, um, near Shepparton, actually. Shepparton Studios, which I think I guess quite a lot of people have heard of. Uh, hopefully when this pandemic's all over, I can actually finally visit London or in England in general because uh, I haven't been out there. And I'm hoping I can visit. I'm hoping that your pandemic quarantine is going all right out there too. Yeah, it's it's pretty quarantined. I don't think I've really not really seen any other people for months and months, except like this. I see other people virtually. So Ben, I'd like to give you the first question I give to all my guests here on the show, and that is, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? I've been thinking about this because obviously I've listened to the show, and I don't think I have one because I don't actually think there's a point for which I cannot remember Star Trek. Um. I do remember being on holiday. I don't know how old I would have been, maybe six or seven. And we were in this cottage and only had a black and white TV. And I watched Star Trek on it and the cottage next door, so the other half of it, had a colour TV. And in the second week, we got to go into the other, the other half, which had the colour TV. And they showed the same episode of Star Trek the next week. I was horrified. <laughs> That's probably the earliest specific memory that I have, but it's just always been there, always been a part of my life. Yeah, that much is very apparent from looking at your very extensive body of work related to Star Trek, which we're going to discuss in depth today. Um, but just a little bit more background about yourself. Uh, and since you're a fan of the show, you probably know where I'm going with this already. But uh, can you tell us a little bit about where you're from, who your parents were, and what little Ben wanted to be when he grew up? <laughs> I still do want to be when I grow up. Um, <laughs> I am. I'm English, obviously. Uh, my dad was a television producer. My mum was an English teacher. Um, my grandfather, people might have heard of, he was a production designer. He worked at Hammer, so he worked on a lot of that kind of stuff. So I grew up around TV, um, and I've always been fascinated by TV. Uh, and I loved Star Trek and Doctor Who, even without sort of caring about how it worked, but I cared about the TV separately, if that kind of made sense. So kind of put the two things together. Yeah, what do I want to be when I grow up? I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I guess I wanted to work in TV. I guess I want to be a TV writer. Do I want to, when I grow up, I want to be Ron Moore. Uh, yeah, that's true. That's what I'd like to be. I'd like to be Ron, Ron D. Moore, though I'm very fond of Ron B. Moore as well. But that, yeah, that's what I would like to be when I grow up is Ron Moore. And since you mentioned uh, with your Hammer connection, did you ever get to visit any of the sets there? No, I mean, my grandfather died when I was a baby, so I never I never got to meet him. Um, and they'd gone. I did meet Christopher Lee. I got introduced to Christopher Lee. It was very funny. I was talking to Christopher Lee, and he was being very nice about my grandfather. He always was. He was saying, oh, your grandfather was the real star of Hammer. And as I was talking to him, I could see this man hovering behind him, looking to sort of break into the conversation. And I realized that it was Dave Prowse. So I was stopping Dracula talking to Darth Vader. 
which is a very strange moment in my life. That, that entire sentence is very surreal, but I'm very excited for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very, very strange moment when you realize what's happening. So as a young kid growing up in the UK, your sci-fi is a little bit different from what we would have had in that era in America. Um, but what did you do back then to kind of grow your nerddom, if you will? Oh, I collected Migos. Um, as how old I am. It was the 70s. I had my Star Trek Migos. I had um, I had uh, Fantastic Four Migos. I had Space 1999 Migos. Um, so actually, I mean, our TV wasn't that different. I guess we had a, we had most of the things you had plus more Doctor Who um, and Blake Seven and those kind of things. I used to read a lot of novelizations. This is back in the day before there were repeats even, before there was streaming. So Doctor Who in particular, the only way you could uh, find out what had happened in older stories was by reading them because that wouldn't get repeated. I mean, I remember being very excited when I was about 15 and people started to actually repeat things. Um, Star Trek was a bit different because they just sort of show the episodes almost kind of randomly. So I didn't even realize there were only 79 episodes until I was about nine or 10. I thought they were still making the show. So, uh, but yeah, I, I, and I would ever, I would always buy any kind of magazine or anything like that, that I could get about stuff, but there weren't a lot back in the seventies and the early eighties. So when did you first discover your talents or your knack for writing and how did you find ways to get that to combine with sci-fi? Uh, well, I always wanted to write, um, regardless of whether it was, you know, this kind of stuff or something else. Uh, and I studied English at university. I studied Shakespeare and all of that kind of stuff. Um, and I went out to, to try and work in publishing. And then they bizarrely advertised for a job for someone who knew about publishing and knew about Star Trek. And I kind of thought, well, that's... That's me. I wasn't very experienced at the time, but I, did, I had you know the right skill set for the particular job. So that's how it kind of came together. Um, and then I've ended up working on licensed uh, stuff ever since. So you know that's not just Star Trek and not just Doctor Who, but James Bond, um, Battlestar Galactica. Uh, I mean, this goes on and on and on. There's a, a ton of stuff that we do. Was there a stigma to be doing this kind of work related to film, television, and in particular, some more of the uh, geekier franchises? I mean, I've just always been happy to do it. I mean, I think one of the things that's really changed with the internet is that we can all meet one another. Um, So, you know, I always laughed at people thinking that every Star Trek fan puts on a, a costume and and makeup and, you know, rocks Spock and all of that kind of stuff. I think uh, the reality is, uh, you know, we're a very, very diverse bunch. Um, And having done, you know, when you do research into who's buying your product, you know, you find with Star Trek that it's often very educated. um, uh, People, you know, we we did folks groups and there were like doctors and lawyers and people like that in there, which we wouldn't have expected for a lot of the other things that we were working on. So your first time uh, working professionally in Star Trek itself was with the Fact Files, correct? That's correct. That's the job that I answered the ad for. Yeah. Okay. And for folks who don't know, that was the UK equivalent of the Star Trek magazine here in the US, I believe. Uh, yeah, it was a little different. It was it was more like Memory Alpha. Um, <laughs> it was like a paper version of Memory Alpha that you bought for 32 pages a week. And we did a, a ton of uh, illustrations, which then ended up in, in the magazine. 
which I did. And that was like the, the great sort of privilege of my life was that I spent four or five years uh, being on a kind of hypercharged version of what you've got, where you can call anybody who's worked on Star Trek and say, hey, can I talk to you about it? I was like, it was, um, yeah, it was pretty bad for me because the line between work and pleasure was indistinguishable. Uh, so you never stop working. Well, is it really a job at that point then? Yeah, well, yeah, it was a job because I would be, you know, you're there sort of writing at two in the morning or whatever. I mean, uh, you know, you had a situation where someone like um, Ira Bear, so Ira has become, you know, a good, a good friend of mine. But Ira would like to be like, okay, there's an eight hour time difference between London and LA. So he would be like, well, no, you know what? You can call me. You get up early and call me after the evening news. So I would be calling Ira at what would be 11 at night, his time, and 7 in the morning, my time. So we're at completely opposite ends of the day, and I'm kind of like, oh, my God, I've just woken up. I just I haven't even had my coffee yet. And he's like, oh, I'm just chilling now. And I would get to the point, I'd be like, Ira, don't you have to get a bed now? <laughs> We'd be talking, and I'd be like, I need to go to the office. So it's like, you know, it's 1 in the morning for you now, Ira. Um, so I've, again, I've forgotten what the question was, but yeah, the difference between um, work and pleasure. So yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, when you spend 12 hours a day doing something, it's work, even if it's something you fundamentally enjoy. And then what do you do to go and relax? You know, I certainly can't watch Star Trek to relax anymore. So back in those early days when you had first begun working for the Fact Files, you know, just, I guess as a personal story before I ask this question here, doing this show in particular, uh, I'm, I'm quite often starstruck with a lot of the guests that come on here. Uh, did you find that being a problem for yourself when you first began to write for that magazine? Uh, the very first interview I did for the magazine was Leonard Nimoy. Oh, that's a big one. Uh, yeah. The way it works with like these big people is that you don't phone them, they phone you. So that you can't accidentally give their number out to somebody else or bug them or anything like that. Um, so I was sitting at home and the phone rings and you pick up the phone and it says, this is Leonard Nimoy. And you think... And I just said, yeah, I kind of know. I've been hearing this voice all my life. So, yeah, I was pretty, pretty starstruck about that. I mean, I ended up talking to Leonard again quite a few times. Um, so, you know, I think he, we got reasonably familiar with one another. I think he knew who I was, which is always a, a privilege. Um, other times have I been starstruck? I mean, that was definitely one. Um, Nick Meyer, Nick, Nick, you have to uh, prove yourself a bit. To Nick, um, but Star Trek Two is like the thing for me. It's like, oh wow, Star Trek Two, you know. Um, yeah, I never, I never interviewed Michelle Forbes because I didn't. I just loved Anson Rowe and all of Michelle Forbes' performances so much that I just thought, oh, if, if I don't think she's wonderful when I interview her, I don't want to know. Uh, <laughs> so I had, yeah, that that I kind of regret a little bit. But you know, you like, um, I never never interviewed her because I thought she was too cool. Um, yeah, but otherwise you kind of get used to it. It's funny, every now and again you get, it still happens. You know, you still think, oh, I'm talking to, to now. I'm trying to think when it last happened. Um, a lot of these interviews I just did for the Voyager book. It was a lot of the first time I talked to a lot of the, the actors. Um, and they were all great. I mean, they were all lovely, but I guess, you know, when you, Jerry Ryan, that was a little bit, it was a terrible line, which doesn't help. Um, and I guess actually Roxanne a little bit. I was a little starstruck because she's just super charming. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, you, I don't know, you kind of get, you get a bit blase about it, get a bit used to it, I'm afraid. So you mentioned interviewing Nick Meyer and having him test you a bit. Uh, and, and that's fairly, I feel like, common with when I've done a lot of these interviews is uh, quite often there's a guest who they don't really know if you're legitimate. They don't think you've got much to offer them. And they're kind of waiting to see what you've got for them. Uh, when you get into those situations like that, you know, from one interview to another, what do you do to try and essentially prove yourself, prove your worth to those guests? Well, if you're talking to Nick Meyer, you talk about um, Plato um, and Shakespeare. <laughs> and I've got some reading to do. Yeah, well, I was okay on that front. I, I knew my way around that stuff. Um, that's what Nick likes. I mean, with other people, I think the hardest thing to either sort of treat you a little differently or to say something that they haven't said before because I think particularly a lot of the actors from the 60s basically have been telling the same stories for for 50 years. Um, and they don't really have that much memory necessarily of actually being in the show. So you can kind of catch them out by asking them those questions that are, uh, yeah, I don't really remember. Um, but someone like... Um, Robert Beltran, who again interviewed for the Voyage, but Robert's very um, and Robert's very cool about things, and you know he he doesn't want to he doesn't he's not at all nerdy, you know he's he's very much oh you know I was just it was just a job it was this, uh, and one of the things that really helps with him was the the people I talked to were people he didn't necessarily expect. So, like, I talked to Mike Demerit, who was the second assistant director, you know, and it was like, okay, you talk to Mike Demerit, you know, he suddenly sees you as a different kind of person, and I guess you're not asking the same questions everybody's always asked. So that helps. Um, I know a lot of the behind-the-scenes people, like, really well. So several of them are, like, real, I would say real friends. Um, so that always helps. They see you as a slightly different kind of person in that context, I think. I imagine working for the official Star Trek publications uh, gives you a lot of access to things that folks like myself would not ever have, never even dreamed to have. Uh, I imagine one of those things might be being able to visit sets. Did you have the chance uh -huh. to ever visit any of the sets of the Trek shows? Yeah, Chateau Picard's really nice. Um, it's, <laughs> now I'm it's jealous. Like, uh, people, people on the Picard thing used to be like, oh, should we just go and sit down in the Chateau? Um, <laughs> it's really, really nice. You're kind of like, going, I, I like to live here. Yeah, so I, I, I was lucky enough to get a set visit. I mean, being in being in London means you don't get a, you know, it makes it a little tricky. Um, but yeah, when you if you can go to visit people who are your friends and who you know, and you're you know you have some legitimacy. Um, I walked around the Deep Space Nine sets as they were tearing them down. That was a bit sad, though. I did get given a few bits of them as they were tearing them off. They were like, yeah, do you want this latinum? I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, Voyager, they were, I was there when they were filming. I mean, the, the fundamental thing is that when someone's filming a TV show, they don't want anybody extra around. You're really just in the way. Um, so it's best not to be there. Um, so what you really want is to walk around the sets when they're not filming. When they are filming, it's pretty boring to be honest. Um, it's very repetitive. There's a lot of waiting around. Uh, you don't get to see like whole scenes played through very often. You'll just get a tiny piece of action repeated six times. 
So, you know, a lot of the pleasure is just in being in the places. And in Star Trek in particular, the sets tend to be closed. I think what's really unusual about Star Trek sets is they have ceilings. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them. So, like, if you're walking down on Voyager, if you walk down the corridors, you really were, like, walking down the corridors. You know, it was like being on the ship. I mean, it was, you know, the rooms were all a bit close to one another. <laughs> you were like, it was only a two-minute walk from sick bay to the bridge. Um, but that was that's a pretty cool experience, yeah. So outside of the magazines, you've also written many, many books about Star Trek. We're going to talk about plenty of them today. Uh, how many books have you actually written about Star Trek? I don't know. So we've got reference books, so like the Shipyards books, which are like the encyclopedia of Starship stuff. So I guess we've got five or six volumes of that out already, and we've, we're working on a couple more. So, you know, I'm very much the kind of guiding voice behind that, but I don't write every word that's in them. Uh, we've done four or five volumes of the designing Starships books. Uh, I did the two Haynes manuals. Um, I've just done this Voyager book, which I'm really very proud of, very happy with. So what's that? Something like a dozen, I guess. I think it's something like that, but I feel like there's some more that you've co-written as well. And, and obviously you've been a part of so many of the ones that have come out from Hero Collector in particular. Um, and since you actually mentioned the Haynes manuals, in fact, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about those because those were some real, uh, I feel like breakout works in particular for you. Uh, and for, for Star Trek fans in general, they're, they're pretty amazing things. You co-wrote those with uh, Marcus Riley. Uh, they're an absolute treasure trove of information about the Enterprise, and you do one about the Klingon Bird of Prey as well. Um, so let's kind of talk a little bit about, about the process to make such a book when you made it in that era, uh, and what you did to basically make it happen and put it all together. So the Haynes Manuals were interesting because I I had never, it's like the breakout thing that you say, I'd never had a credit before. I'd still been doing a ton of stuff, but no one put my, didn't put my name on anything because of the nature of the people I'd worked for. Um, the the Haynes Manuals are very different. So the Enterprise one was like a version of what we had done in the Fact Fathers or in the magazine, um, just a different one, longer form, which was nice. Um, so really that's just a case of having exhaustive and comprehensive knowledge of of the TV show, you know, knowing everything that there has been the standard. When we did the... The Klingon one, and I said to him, well, the problem is, you know, the Enterprise one, you can just uh, document everything that's ever been said. But for the Klingon one, we're going to have to make stuff up because we just haven't seen enough of it. And that was a lot of fun. So I was, like, really scrupulous about making sure that everything I put in was a logical extension of everything we'd seen in the show. Um, You know, really did the research to make sure every single thing that had ever been said about it was there and used as the basis for what we did. And then I, I worked with Rick Sternback on that one. So Rick had obviously been involved um, quite a lot with that that Bird of Prey's appearances on Next Gen. Um, so, you know, we worked out together how a lot of stuff worked and what the, the missing bits of it would look like. Uh, so, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoyed that one. And did you work on that one also with Doug Drexler and the Okudas? No, well, Mike was uh, uh, Akuda was the consultant on both those books. So, so Mike was basically fact checking me, um, which he was knows everything. He, does, he knows pretty much everything. Uh, he knows a lot. Um, but that was, you know, and that was a, a pleasant and painless experience. 
Uh, Doug contributed some renders to the Enterprise one because he'd built all the sets for the original series Enterprise in CG to teach himself how to do CG. That's what he'd done is rebuild all the original series sets. I think my question now following up on that is how much the techno babble related to how these ships work did you actually understand and how much of it was just made up for the books? <laughs> um, I, I, it's very difficult. I'm not a massive fan of techno babble. Um, I, you know, as someone who writes, your goal is to make things as clear and as simple as possible. So George Orwell um, famously said that good prose is like a pane of glass. You know, you, you know it's there, but you can see straight through it. Um, and I think the problem with techno bubble is that you can't always see straight through it. Um, uh, again, on the Voyage book, we talk, I talked to a lot of the actors about how did you feel about techno bubble? And, you know, Kate Mulgrew was saying, oh, I just had to find out what it all meant. I had to go to school and, and you know, understand it so that I understood what was happening when there was a static walk shell around the ship or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but Rick... Uh, Rick loves Techno Bubble. Uh, <laughs> Rick wanted the Rick wanted the Ains manuals to read like a NASA manual uh, with non-conformal entrance portways rather than a door. Um, so that was interesting. But I always thought, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important that if you read something, you want to be able to understand it without having to go and do a degree in war part of war physics or whatever. Very, very true. <laughs> so Ben, can you tell us the story now about how you began to work with Eagle Moss? So I, the company I originally worked for, worked for a company called GE Fabry. So they were the publisher and they were the publisher of the Star Trek Fat Farms. And then when the company I worked for, which was Midsummer Books, folded, I went to work for GE Fabry. And then Eagle Moss bought GE Fabry. And that's basically, so I, that's my life story, basically. That's the last 23 years of my life. Um, so all of that time has been kind of some kind of licensed, you know, uh, licensed publishing or models. So, uh, Star Trek, Doctor Who, Stargate, James Bond, Battlestar Galactica, and on and on. Now, Eagle Moss itself is a pretty expansive company. I think a lot of folks don't realize just quite how encompassing Eagle Moss actually is. Hero Collector is just one part of it. Um, so do you know actually much about the history of the company? And can you explain some of that to uh, listeners who might be a little bit unfamiliar with it? So we, um, there's a category of product that doesn't exist in the U.S., which is why most Americans wouldn't know anything about us, apart from us, I guess. So what happens is that you distribute things through newsstands, kiosks, newsstands, um, as a, a different way of getting them to market. So, and that could be anything that you build up a collection of. So originally it was like um, guides to classical music or jazz or art or uh, DIY encyclopedias or those kinds of things. So like a massive book that you would buy in installments, which is what the Star Trek Fact Files was. Um, and then we, as an industry, started to sell a thing with the, with the printed book. Um, and so you might, it might be, say, with your classic guide to classical music, you might get a, a record with it, an LP. And then that became a CD. Um, and then people started doing DVDs 
And then people started doing models. So Eagle Moss, who I you know, now work for, they were the first ones to do figurines. They did a very successful Lord of the Rings collection, which was a huge thing. Um, so that's how the, the business kind of evolved. But when we operate in 35 countries, um, you know, that, that sort of newsstand business is gradually going away. We do less and less of that. Um, and you know, sell much more the way we do in the states, where it's all done online or you know through specialist retailers. Right. I remember seeing a toy fair uh, that you guys are now starting to actually try to bring some other products into America uh, and bring some more of that expansive Eagle Moss things into it. Like uh, I remember seeing there was Harry Potter cookie cutters and like a Harry mm-hmm. Potter uh, uh, wool kit, yarn kit, essentially like makes scarves and all sorts of things like that. So uh, it's kind of exciting that you guys are now trying to actually enter into that market. It's a very big market in America that's uh, a little bit new for. For you guys in particular but uh it's nice to see something different i guess besides the star trek ships which we'll talk about in a minute yeah i mean it's it's uh, i mean i represent i mean the basically the 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 genre stuff the license stuff has been the thing that we as a company have done best with the thing we we've excelled at and done a better job than the other companies but yeah my colleague stella who heads up our new product development team uh, she's been producing some amazing Harry Potter stuff. Um, the knit kits, which are out now, uh, I think, you know, one of the best products we've ever made. Um, we've got some very clever stuff coming in the next year or so that we, uh, we haven't formally announced yet. Um, but yeah, we did, um, we did like one of those big, uh, you know, it's like the big things was to learn how to cook thing. And we did a, like a Disney cakes and sweets thing where you've got all these different cake molds and stuff and you could make these amazing, um, Disney cakes and sweets for that matter. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, my name is Walker Brandt, and I was privileged to play the role of Cadet Hajar in the episode... The first duty, Star Trek The Next Generation. I was also a guest on Trek Untold a few months ago. And during my interview with Matt, I introduced my new book, Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence. The dedication in Awaken reads to the human spirit, the final frontier within. I'm a Trekkie, I'm a fan, and I have always believed that the final frontier is our unlimited imagination. And the reason I wrote my book is to support the reader, to always remember that when you combine your unlimited imagination with your innocence, you know, that playfulness as a child where you had no fear about the unknown. In fact, every single day you woke up into the unknown and you wanted to explore. 
That's been my journey. And that's how I believe that we change our reality for the better together because we're all creators and we're all explorers. So I ask you, what excites you? How will you expand and go where you've never been before? What steps will you take to embrace the unknown? So awaken, discovering yourself through the light of your innocence is there to support the reader, to share my journey, to let you know you're not alone, to let you know that if you've been through challenges and difficulties and times in your life where you felt like you just couldn't go on, I've been there with you. And this book is there for you to encourage you to keep getting back up and moving forward into the adventure. So I hope you have a chance to read it. It's titled Awaken, Discovering Yourself Through the Light of Your Innocence, and it's available on Amazon. And it's the number one international bestseller. So I hope you get a chance to get on that journey with me. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at walkerbrandt.com or on my social media, Facebook, Instagram. Thanks so much. And I hope we get a chance to connect. We now return to Trek Untold. But I think the thing everybody wants to hear the most about today is the Star Trek ships, the official ship collection, the official Starship collection, I should say. That's the full proper name for it. <laughs> yes, I guess. Yes. Yeah, something like that. Uh, and yeah, I think that's probably why a lot of fans today are listening, especially because they want to hear all about these ships. So, uh, Ben, I'd like to kind of hear, I guess, the origin story behind the official Starships collection. How did you guys go from the books to books with models? Well, so the the original thing I told you about at Eagle so they did figurines. So they did the Lord of the Rings figurines and they followed up with uh, Marvel figurines and DC figurines. And when I, this was, I was working in G Fabry at the time and they said, well, let's try some Star Trek figurines. Um, and to be honest, I don't think I did a particularly brilliant job with that. Um, you know, figurines very much depend on the sculptors. And uh, Eagle Moss already had all the best sculptors, <laughs> so it was quite difficult for us to break in. But while we were doing the research for that, we realised that actually people probably wanted the ships even more than they wanted the people. So it went on the list of things that we should develop. And also the other thing that came up was that we knew that uh, ships could be 100% accurate. Um, because we could get the CG files from the visual effects guys, who I know knew know very well. So we were able to source the actual original models, um, which CBS didn't have. Um, We had to go around the houses to get them from all sorts of people and places. Um, And then we were able to literally convert those into the tooling or make the tooling from them. Um, and like a lot of the extra details are things that you couldn't even see on screen, we were able to include. So I always remember like really early on, we did the, um, the ECS Fortunate um, from Enterprise. And there were like these little labels on the cargo pods that were different for each cargo pod. Uh, and I don't think anybody knew that until we made the model, you know. So that was nice. Yeah, I'd like to ask a little bit more about that fabrication process. And you'd use the word tooling for folks who don't really know much about toys or that kind of thing. Tooling is the actual process to uh, essentially sculpt or construct something. Um, so, yeah, you guys mentioned that you use the CG files here. So what does that mean for making something uh, essentially from start to finish? You have the CG file. You're going to tool it into a finished product, ultimately something that gets mass produced. Uh, what does that process look like? So we get hold of the original visual effects model 
that's used by the VFX team. And so we just had, we've had all the ones for Discovery Season 3 delivered and, you know, we're looking at them and going, ah, oh, they're not actually connected to one another. That's going to be interesting. Um, <laughs> but then we we send, we do a little bit of work on those files just to make them a little bit easier to work with. Um, we used not to have to do that, but with the the, the, the files that they have for um, Picard and for Discovery, they're so incredibly complicated in the way they do the textures that we can't just put them out of the door exactly like that. Uh, but we convert it into a, a particular export format. We don't do any, make any changes to it. We then send it to the factory. This is a factory out in the Far East. And they work out how best to, best to break it up and to actually physically construct it. Um, and then they use that to make the tool that makes the, the parts. Uh, you have different kinds of tools depending on what the parts are made of. Uh, so die cast is like a big stamping thing. Um, uh, but a lot of other things are spin cast or injection molded or whatever. Uh, so they work out how best to do that. They then send their sort of slightly modified version back to us for us to, to go over. Um, what you find is that with a VFX model, a CG model, that the detail can be put in in different ways. So for anyone who knows a bit about modeling, it can either be in the in the geometry, it can be physically built into the ship, or it could just be a texture map or a bump map. So that, that it's like a, an item of clothing almost that's around the model. Um, and when you have those uh, non-physical bits of detail, we have to add those back into the geometry. So we'll say, oh, look, there's a grill here. You need to add that or so on. Um, and then we we render out um, the plan views of the ship, which are the, you know, which makes up the shipyard's books, um, and use those to create the paint guides for the factory. Um, and this is an interesting subject, the whole thing about painting. I can go on about for hours and hours and hours uh, because the way something appears on screen is what's important to me, not necessarily what it looks like in its native format. Um, when they used to work still with uh, physical models, they would do things where what they would do is they would paint them quite vibrantly um, in order to make it easier to film them, to composite them. And then when they were um, compositing them digitally, they would then dial it down. So quite often what you see, so if you look at a really good example is the Jamhadar fighter, Jamhadar bug. When you look at that model, it's like it's green and purple. And when you look at it on screen, it's not. Um, I, you know, I hope that what we bring to it is a recognition of what it actually looked like on screen um, and not just copying some particularly the paint scheme directly from the model. I'm glad you brought that up, in fact, because, uh, you know, outside of doing the Star Trek stuff here, I'm also an action figure collector, uh, and I also do minifigure painting. You might know Warhammer 40K. That's pretty big where you guys yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I do some minifigure painting. And, like, one of the biggest complaints I always see among toy collectors and also minifigure painters is um, representation of something with the paint. So I'll see, like, a Hot Toys figure, for example, and they'll say, oh, it doesn't look like this guy. But in reality, it looks like the person it just doesn't look like the way they feel they look or that they remember they look because it's an on-screen element versus native elements, if you will. Uh, is that something that you've had to deal with as, as a hurdle in terms of fans with trying to help them understand what the difference is between essentially not to correct them, but to help them understand what you guys are doing with the product? Well, one of the, the reasons when we, they obviously had the magazines that come with the ships. One of the reasons for that 
was to explain to people why it looked the way it did. So it was like, I mean, a really good example of that is the Enterprise D, where there were three different models of the Enterprise D, and they're not all exactly the same. Um, you know, so someone might look at it and go, well, that's wrong because I've got this clip here that shows it's different. And you go, well, yeah, but I've got a clip here that shows it is like this. So uh, to give you an example, 10 forward is not part of the original model that ILM made for next generation. There is no space for 10 forward on that model. Um, so is that model wrong? Uh, it's a difficult question. Yeah, these are some weird, weird questions that really do boggle Trek fans' mind and I think will forever boggle their minds, uh, self-included here too. Yeah. Uh, so you guys have done, I think it's what, 180 ships in the official Starships collection? Is that right? The main collection, um, which was the subscription program, has 180 ships in it. Then there's another 25 or so bonus ships, which is something we're continuing with. So that's basically the main main collection will continue to do like a bit less frequently, but it's coming back in the middle of next year. Uh, then we've done, well, we've planned 30 larger ships. We've done 27, 28 special ships. We've done seven shuttle sets, each of which has four shuttles in it. What's that takes up to? I mean, it's it's somewhere around the 250, somewhere between 250. Oh, and Discovery Collection. An entire Discovery Collection has 33 ships in it. Uh, we're working on Picard and on Discovery Season 3 at the moment. So, I mean, we're going to be, certainly by the end of next year, we'll be well over 300 ships. So it is a very all-encompassing kind of line. Uh, and yeah, I'm curious what the most demanded ship was from the fans, because you guys covered like nearly everything in there. So uh, what was the one that everybody was clamoring the most to get their hands on? Um, I don't know, is the honest answer to that. I mean, I think the the one thing I was amazed to discover no one had done was we made the first official model of the Akira class. And that that's insane to me. You, you're kind of like, how can that be? I mean, you know, it's such a fan favorite show. Um, I mean, what happens now is that the fans are—they get more and more obscure. There becomes a kind of, ah, yes, can I have the Talaxian fighter, but not the Talaxian fighter that you see in this episode, the one you see in this episode, for two seconds. Um, I mean, I, I personally, I'm, I'm always very responsive to people who want to see next-gen models um, because, you know, that was when a new ship was something special. You know, then, I mean, not that they're not now, but by the time you get to Voyager or Enterprise, a new ship is like an easy thing. They can have one every week. Um, whereas on next gen, it would be like, well, maybe three or four times a season. You know? And I know this is like trying to ask you to pick your favorite child, but is there a ship design that you guys made at Hero Collector that you like the most? Um, the things that have most pleased me are sometimes you, you kind of get the model and you take that out of the box and you go, oh, wow. That's just right. So I always say that happened to me with the original series Enterprise. Um, that was just, you know, it was just amazing um, and very, very satisfying. I felt like a pipe cleaner alien. I felt like Sylvia or Coral with my tiny little Enterprise. That was very satisfying. I think the Reliant always turns out really well. That's one that it's just like, okay, cool. That's that model just looks really like the real thing. It just, everything about it fits with what we do. Uh, so those two always really pleasing. 
I guess I've really enjoyed doing the concept ships, so the ships that were designed and not built. So, like, we finished off Rick Sternbeck's original concept for Voyager, which they very, very nearly went with. So we finished that. That was great. We're just finishing off um, Jim Martin's original concept for The Defiant now, which also looks really cool. So, yeah, those are a lot of fun. When you get to do something that didn't get seen before, and it's like, oh, okay, this is what it would look like. Now, being a Star Trek expert yourself, is there one ship or maybe one uh, concept ship, one variant of a ship that already exists that has not been made yet by Hero Collector that you want to see before this collection totally wraps up for good? Um, yeah, there are. I mean, there are, there are things that are in development. So we're doing um, Andy Probert's design for the Vertical Warbird. Um, Andy's been helping us with that, but it's, he's been very busy and it's taken him a long time. Um, and also another one that falls into that category, which actually I'm really personally very invested in, is the Emmett Till, which is the ship they came up with for the Deep Space Nine documentary that we design. We got John Eves to design, but John has been so busy working on Picard and all these Marvel TV shows and everything that he keeps saying, "Oh man, I'm going to finish it to you. I'm going to finish for you really soon." So those two, I uh, yeah, I've, uh, I get John to listen. Um, I will point out to you that you know I do not want to die without seeing that ship, John. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's that voice because I need to nag John. You can correct me if I'm wrong here about it. I don't think you guys have done any of the Ralph McQuarrie concepts before, right? From the Planet of the Titans films? There's a legal issue with that. Is it? Okay, yeah. I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily a legal bar, but the problem with it is that um, they have to, Paramount and CBS have to be satisfied that they own the rights. Now, I'm satisfied that they own the rights, but they actually have to send a lawyer into their filing cabinets to find the contract with Ken Adam, um, who would be responsible for the design of the ship uh, from 1976. Uh, and they just haven't got the time or the resources to, to go and do that, um, which I find very frustrating because we actually got as far as making the, we, we made remade the CG for it. But for both versions, there are two different uh, versions of that ship that were designed. Um, so yeah, that's a, that, that one, it, it kind of depends on somebody at CBS or Paramount having enough time to go back through the files, which is unlikely to be honest. Uh, I do a lot of Star Trek toy reviews on my YouTube channel, Nerd News Today. And one of the things you always hear from people who watch them is just the complaint about the lack of new action figures out there. And uh, this kind of relates to you guys, I guess, because you guys are not in the action figure marketplace, but you're in a similar kind of collectible place. Um, so, you know, whenever I've talked to companies at Toy Fair who have done Star Trek uh, and have stopped, they tell me it just doesn't bring in the money. And McFarlane Toys is a great example of that. They did like basically two figures and they were out. Um, Diamond Select had a pretty big line for many years, and then they also kind of got out of it. And there's still ships they showed off that haven't been produced yet. Um, so, again, first, the, the main thing these companies say is that it doesn't make them money. But here I'm, I'm talking to Hero Collector. And you guys are doing this line that's been going on for years now. So what is the difference between what you do versus what these extra guys are doing? And they're failing at apparently. Uh, There's a very interesting thing about business models. So if you are McFarlane, who do beautiful work, I mean, they do fantastic stuff. You um, rely on selling very large volumes of things in Walmart, basically. So you need, you, you sell something quite cheaply and you rely on selling a lot of them. And that's your business model. Um, and you also rely on a certain number of people going into that store. 
So if you're in the Pasadena Walmart, I'm going to find out there isn't one now, but say you're in the Pasadena Walmart, only the people who, you have to have enough people who shop in the Pasadena Walmart who like Star Trek to buy a Star Trek product. So you need to be very mass market. Whereas what we do is we find a community that might be large enough internationally, but is very spread out. And because we mostly sell online, we can depend, we can be confident that people will come to us rather than us having to put something in a store where maybe there are just no, nobody that wants to buy it in the, the kind of area for that store. So what would you say is maybe stopping Hero Collector from being in a Walmart itself? Uh, you know, like, cause you guys are doing pretty big business and, uh, you know, we, we don't really see models as much in Walmarts these days, for example, but uh, it is a pretty niche product that I think is out there and there's interest in. Um, what stop you guys from just saying, hey, let's make a whole big batch of Enterprise Ds because that's really popular and let's try and get it out there in the market? Yeah, well, we kind of could do that. Um, the issue with it is that Walmart are the ones who are like saying, well, you know, we would rather have Iron Man. We Marvel is a big enough brand for us. Um, this other stuff isn't. You know, they, they have to be confident that there are enough people who will go into that store who will want that product. Now, there are enough, there are definitely enough Star Trek fans, and maybe the Walmart in Seattle would be fine, um, but they need stuff to be very mass market in order to do that. So you tend not to see the more niche products in those kind of outlets or those kind of uh, companies getting into that kind of business. We're starting to see a lot more uh, diecast vehicles, I feel like, pop up now in Targets in America and Walmart, other stores. So diecast is still a big thing, um, maybe not quite as big as we'd all like it to be. But um, you know, in terms of what HeroCut's been doing, what do you guys see in terms of the trends of the changing marketplace, if there is a change in the marketplace for diecast ships and things that are similar to what you at HeroCut are doing? Well, the thing that's been really satisfying for us or really interesting for us is I don't know that anybody else really does it very much or very well. And there are some nice models out there, but they're not they're not often die cast. There's often quite a lot of work involved in them. So, like the really beautiful models, if you want to spend two hundred dollars on a you know a massive model kit that you put together and paint yourself, and then buy a lighting kit and all of that on top of it, there's you can get some amazing results. But I'm I'm personally am completely without skill. So uh, having something that is ready-made and ready-painted and someone who really knows what they're doing, I hope, uh, has put a lot of effort in, into getting it right, uh, I think is, is important. Um, and we're expanding into to other, other licenses with the ships. We've already done some alien ships. We've done Battlestar Galactica ships. Um, you know, we announced that we've got license to do Stargate ships and the Expanse ships. So, you know, we just have to hope that there are enough people out there who want to buy them. Um, but basically, that's what means we get to carry on doing them. You know, if, if enough people buy them, then my bosses, who don't necessarily know one end of a starship from another, uh, will be like, okay, yeah, carry on doing this. We're making money. So what would you say would be the probability then of Hero Collector going in a different direction with the product lines? Because as we mentioned, you know, again, everything's pretty much the diecast ships that you're doing. But what about PVC collectibles? Are doing figurines in PVC format to be maybe more affordable, a different fan base? Uh, is that something that Hero Collector is considered doing? Yeah, we look at it. Um, it. It goes back again to the different kinds of manufacturing methods are suitable for different things. So when you look at a lot of um, PVC or vinyl 
you've got quite a lot of cost up front, but then you have a very low unit cost. So you need to sell. They work well for things that sell in very large volume. So that's why you'll see a lot of that for Marvel, as an example. Um, whereas when you do the resin figurines, you know, resin has different kind of fidelity. Um, you know, you, you, you get better edges, you get probably get better facial detail, and then a lot of it's in the painting. But that doesn't have the same fixed costs, so you don't have to pay so much up front, but then the individual pieces cost more. So um, I think the trend I would see is that it's harder and harder for people to do things that depend on volume, um, unless it's WWE or, you know, uh, those kind of things. And I do like the WWE work that you guys are doing, by the way, as a fan. That's, that's pretty cool, too. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I hope so. Yeah, I mean, there's a place. I hope there's a place for everything. But since, of course, we are Star Trek-centric today, let's just spend some more time on that. And uh, I think, as we alluded to earlier, the official Starships collection has more or less come to a close now, but the line is continuing in a new way. So uh, can you kind of preview for us what the new plans are for Star Trek in 2021? So, yeah, I mean, well, the, uh, we absolutely continue. Um, people should def- definitely not think, because we've stopped doing 180 original ships, that that's it. Uh, it's not at all. It was just that that was the subscription program that was driving it um, from outside the U.S., really. Um, so we've been releasing the larger ships, the XL versions. We continue to do that. Um, we've been releasing discovery ships. We're going to relaunch that line as a new line that encompasses both Picard and discovery. And when we get to it, strange new worlds, um, we've got some lower deck stuff to do. Um, and as I say, we carry on doing some individual issues that would perhaps have been in, in the main collection. You, you know, we just, but they won't be part of a subscription program anymore. That's all done, just be available to buy individually. So uh, that's it on the ships with Star Trek. Yeah. And at this very moment, also, uh, Eagle Moss has a whole bunch of new Star Trek books out there coming out for this holiday season. They're already out, they're available right now. We're going to have links for everything we're, we're going to discuss here in our show notes. But, uh, Ben, for folks who are not aware exactly, can you kind of run down uh, what some of the new books are you guys have out? Because it's a pretty diverse range this holiday season. Yeah, I hope so. Um, so we have, um, I'm trying to think how many, I'm sorry, I'm working on stuff that isn't out until next year. So I'm trying to make sure I get the, right, get the, list, the list right. So we have The Nerd Search, which is a very fun idea. That's the Stalo I mentioned earlier. She was laughing at us and saying, all you guys do, you love the show. All you want to do is find errors in it, find mistakes. So we did a, a search and find book um, that has deliberate mistakes in it. Um, so it has continuity errors in it. So it's like, hang on a minute. He's wearing the uniform from the cage, but the buttons on the bridge console were only the ones introduced in 2266. Uh, <laughs> and the idea is, can you spot? Can you spot those kind of continuity errors? Um, and that's a lot of fun. Um, that's a uh, stellar work that up with Glenn, uh, who is one of our authors. And Glenn also wrote the Star Trek cocktail book, uh, which is out and seems to be going down very well. Um, and that is 40... Uh, Star Trek cocktails. They're either classic cocktails with a Star Trek twist or some of them are a little bit more uh, uh, extraordinary. Um, there are a couple that actually change colour as you make them. Were you taste testing these to make sure the quality assurance was on point? I haven't actually had to do that, funnily enough. I missed that day. 
<laughs> as opposed to the people who didn't miss that day and missed the next day. Um, so that's up. Um, then, and that's a lot of fun. I think, you know, there's some, some very cool, very cool looking drinks in there. It's got some nice illustrations and some nice photography in there as well. Uh, and then Glenn also did uh, one of my, my favourite book, actually, which is uh, Mr. Spock's Little Book of Mindfulness, uh, which is taking all Spock's wisdom and trying to apply it to our lives today. Uh, I very, and with Glenn does these beautiful, very funny cartoons. Uh, and, it, you know, it, the idea for that was very much what would happen if Spock were confronted by 2020. You know, he'd just, like, raise an eyebrow and be like, you know, um, sometimes you just have to be philosophical <laughs> and logical and Vulcan. So those are very much our kind of uh, Christmassy titles. And then um, my contribution really um, is Mark Wright and I have written this big Voyager book, which is a big uh, retrospective on Voyager, uh, which I'm I'm very very proud of. Actually, very very pleased with. We did something like thirty new interviews, a bit more than that. Um, talk to all of the cast cast members, talk to every department, um, all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, those those are the four books that are out right now. Yeah, those are the big Christmas titles. Yeah, it's a lot to keep track of, uh, but yeah, they're all really great. Uh, you guys were kind enough to actually send me some advanced previews so I could take a look, and uh, I can definitely give the Trek Untold thumbs up for everything you guys did this season. The Cocktails book is great. And going from Cocktails to the Mindfulness book also with Spock, too, I feel it's kind of a funny uh, uh, contrast between each other because you've got one book about getting inebriated, one book versus trying to keep yourself together. <laughs> but I find like both books are very much a sign of 2020 because it's been a rough year for us, and I feel like as much as we need those uh, Andorian drinks, we also need a little bit of to help keep us surviving and staying sane and this year and what's coming in the future yeah i hope so i mean i think spock is uh, what i discovered when we were doing this i didn't even realize this when glenn and i first had the idea is spock is this kind of perfect cartoon character if you think about like the really classic uh kind of new yorker cartoon kind of character he, that's what he is he is you know exactly how he's going to respond to the world you know that you can confront him with this madness and he's just going to sort of impassively look slightly bemused and raise an eyebrow. And, and I hope that it, it's funny. I mean, you've, you've read enough of it yet. Did you, did you laugh? I mean, did you feel made wise? I feel like it's funny that you mentioned the the, uh, the the illustrations pet and how they look because that that's actually what I thought too. Like they have this very classy, very timeless New Yorker kind of look to them. Uh, I was trying to remember the name of an artist. There's like one artist in particular from that era of like the, the great highlight era of the illustrators in the 50s and 60s, who his work just very much reminded me of. And I loved seeing that. Uh, and, and yeah, it's it's true. Like Spock really just does feel like that perfect foil for all this kind of emotional baggage that we go through because he is the opposite of that. But how he deals with that is in a way it is a part of being mindful. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you, you take those uh, Vulcan life lessons, they are actually surprisingly wise. I mean, I hope the book makes you laugh, but it, it, I hope it also actually makes you think, yeah, actually, that is, that's helpful. You know, this is a better way to approach life. And like I should add to, like, it's not like it's a self-help book. It's not like one of those kind of preachy things. That's not really either what mindfulness is about. Uh, it's just about kind of being into yourself and understanding the self. Uh, and no one knows that better than Vulcans. Let's get real here. <laughs> it's very true. I, I, I like to think it's, it's uh, a, a bathroom book 
it's the book that you go into the bathroom and you're just like, just have a little read and then you like don't come back for half an hour. Uh, everyone worries that you're ill. Um, but it, it's, you know, I, I just think Glenn is such a, a witty, insightful person. And, and the, you know, the, the wisdom is genuine um, and the, the affection that he has for it all, it really shines through. So, I, I, you know, and I think it's something uh, Star Trek just hasn't had enough of, is this kind of treatment. You know, there's a, a lot of four-colour stuff, and this is a little more sophisticated, I guess. It isn't that way. It, it's sophisticated in its simplicity, but it is like a perfect, easy read. I mean, this isn't like anything tough here. This is just, you know, what this is what it is. It's, it's very much exactly what it should be. It works. Definitely, definitely works. Good. I'm glad to hear it. I mean, I, I think it's, yeah, and as I say, I think it, I, I, I showed it to my mother who doesn't know anything about Star Trek, but she laughed, you know, um, and I, I hope that's, that's what it brings to people is, I mean, it, it is meticulously researched. I mean, it, you know, it, it does have, it has good jokes, but it also, you know, every quote is identified as coming from a specific episode being said in a specific circumstance. And it's uh, all the different incarnations of Spock. It's not just, it's the original series, it's the movies, it's the animated series. We even have a bit from yesteryear in there. Uh, and uh, the Ethan Peck version of, of Spock in Discovery. Uh, and then a few kind of bits of uh, Vulcan wisdom that are taken from two Vulcan Voyager as well. So, it, you know, it, it's... Uh, I hope that's always what we do is it's, you know, fun, but carefully researched. It's definitely plomeek soup for the soul. We'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Star Trek Voyager celebration book, that thing is just a beauty. Like hardcore fans are going to want to eat this thing up. It's amazing. The amount of work you guys did for that is insane. Um, but, you know, this being Trek Untold here, I'd like to know if you can maybe give us a little preview of what's in the book and perhaps tell us uh, a story that was untold previously that's now in this celebration book. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really pleased with that book because as a, a Star Trek consumer, you kind of realise that the, this is the book that hasn't been done for each of the series. And if, if people like this book and they buy it, then we'll come back next year and do another one for a different series and so on and so on. So it has a lot of stuff that was untold in it, actually, I hope. I mean, I always figure if there are things that I haven't heard, then then... Lots of people haven't heard them. You know, they're, I mean, I've been doing this professionally for 23 years, so I've been lucky enough to spend my, my living talking to people about Star Trek. Um, yeah, one of my favourite stories, I mean, one that I guess has been told a little bit is the time they set fire to Robert Duncan McNeil. Um, they, um, well, go on. I need to hear more about this one. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, so Robbie, when he was doing Captain Proton, so they, uh, they're, filming this bit, and they actually get the original um, Captain Cody rocket pack uh, that they had, and they they put the, have these giant kind of uh, sparklers that they put in the back of the rocket pack, and then they, uh, they like, looking at Robbie, and they go, okay, yeah, so you're going to be on this rig like this, and we'll put, uh, we're going to put the rocket pack on you, and then we're going to light the sparklers on the back, and all these sparks will come out of the back, and go, oh, this is great. But luckily, they thought to put him in um, fire retardant clothing. Uh, he was wearing like these pants that were like the ones the racing car drivers wear. Uh, because when they put him on the thing and they're filming it, and they suddenly go, Robbie's on fire. And they literally set fire to his pants. Um, <laughs> and they had to pull him down. I mean, it's, you know, it's actually, I mean, it is funny, 
but it was, I don't think they thought it was very funny at the time. Um, and they had to sort of pull him down off this thing and, and put him out. But that take actually gets used uh, in the episode. So when you watch the episode, you realize that Robbie is about five seconds away from catching fire. Gotta love a story about immolation. Never, never a bad time with those. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So again, we spent today really primarily talking about Star Trek with Hero Collector and Eagle Moss, but Hero Collector line does do a lot more like WWE. There's Marvel, there's Ghostbusters, uh, Battlestar Galactica, the Orville. You guys were the first ones back to do the Orville yeah. ship. I remember that being a big announcement at Toy Fair. Again, just I'm trying to get some more information. I'm trying to pull some teeth here and see what I can find from you. But 2021, what do you guys have in mind for Star Trek books, for Star Trek ships and other licenses that we can expect to look forward to? Well, certainly The Expanse is one I'm, I'm personally pretty excited by. You know, Ryan Denning, who uh, worked on Discovery, uh, also worked on designing most of the ships for The Expanse. Uh, Ryan's a lovely guy, so I'd be very pleased to be working with him again on that. Uh, in terms of the books, there's a very exciting project that we haven't quite nailed down, which actually I don't think will be out until 2022, uh, but that would be, if that comes off, I'm going to be all over the place telling people about that. That, that could be very very timely and very exciting, but I can't tell you what it is because I haven't managed to get everything kind of nailed nailed down on it yet. Um, we, I hope, are going to do, it's the, um, let me get this right, it's the 55th anniversary of the original series next year. So uh, just as we've done the Voyager celebration book, uh, we're just starting work on an original series celebration book. Uh, it's a little different because the not that many people are around left to interview. Um, but one of the things I hope, and I don't know how much of a chance you've had to read the celebration book, but one of the things I hope is really different about that is it's not just a straight interview with a person. It's like talking to several people about a topic or about a character. So, you know, I was saying this, that when we talked to, um, when we talked to Kate Mulgrew uh, about playing Janeway, we also talked to Jerry Taylor, who was very, you know, instrumental in creating the character about what it was like watching Kate audition and how Kate changed their ideas about what who you Janeway was. And then we talked to Brandon, Brandon Braga, uh, who was the who replaced Jerry as the showrunner, about what her what he wanted to do with Janeway and how he saw her differently and how the character evolved and the introduction of Seven and all of that. And then talk to a lot of the other writers about it. And then you're telling the you're telling the actor things that the writer said and the actor didn't necessarily know them. Um, you know, one of the lovely things that um, both Ethan Phillips and Robert Picardo said is, oh God, there's loads of stuff in here I didn't know. And I was there, you know. Um, so I think we can still do that for the original series as well. There's, there are a lot of, you know, I used to talk to Dorothy Fontana quite a lot. So there's a, you know, um, we can put the things that Dorothy said about Spock together with the things that Lennon said about Spock. And then it becomes, you know, a little more, um, than you might expect. Um, I'm trying to think we've got more shipyards books coming out. Um, got a, a next generation nerd search for people whose continuity bent goes more that way. Um, yeah, they've got a bunch of things that they'll be basically a similar program to this year, I hope. And just by the way, on that side note too, about how you guys put together the Voyager book with the interviews, I, I did actually appreciate that. It was very much more like reading a conversation. Mm. Like one of my biggest pet peeves, uh, I've got some books um, where they're basically just purely that it's just a transcript of an interview. And I don't want that. I could just watch that. I wanted to see that. I liked how you guys actually did put together pieces from different things. You know, I, whenever I've written articles in the past, I think one of the most popular ones I wrote, unrelated to Trek, 
was back for uh, an MMA website, and I did the story of UFC 9, which has the fight between the rematch between Ken Shamrock and Dan Severn. It's considered like one of the worst fights in UFC history. And so I got quotes from Dan. I got the perspective from Ken. And then I got the owner of the company, Bob Meyerowitz's uh, thoughts, as well as uh, Big John McCarthy, the referee's thoughts on everything that happened. So uh, it's definitely way more interesting to get like all the perspectives and have them play off each other. Uh, it makes just a much more interesting read, much more fascinating piece. So a uh, round of applause for you guys for doing that, for actually making it a little bit more interesting to look at. Well, I think it's also, it's about how you can bring a different perspective to things. Because I think a lot of people have interviewed the, the actors, obviously. A lot of people have interviewed the writers and producers, but they haven't interviewed them together, as it were. So that interplay and that understanding and that uh, that way that people feed back on one another is something that I don't think anyone has really done enough on. Um, I mean, one of the things that really set me off onto this was like 20 years ago, uh, I did a piece at the end of Deep Space Nine when Ira, Ira and I talked through the evolution of Cisco and the, how the character changed over the years. And Ira loved that piece because he had not, thought about it that way himself so he had he had done each episode as it had come and he had thought about the future but he hadn't looked back at the past and seen how things had changed and i think that that people very rarely have that opportunity to sort of look back and and see the whole thing um and, and also to hear what other people have said. I mean, one of my other great moments is we did a, a thing about the Borg and back when we had the magazine. And I was interviewing Brandon about it. He said, you know what I'd really like to know is this. And I was going, well, actually, Brandon, I can tell you because I've just been talking to Maury Hurley about it. And he, exactly that. And you realise, you know, how, how many things people don't know, even though they're actually working on it. So Ben, I had one other idea for you guys. I'm sure you guys get pitched things all the time when you're at conventions and things like that, but um, kind of following up on what you're doing with the Hero Collector Ecto-1 model, which is basically a subscription build-it series, like you're getting all the pieces and you're building a very large Ecto-1. Uh, what's the probability of seeing something like that for Star Trek? Like, could, could we ever see anything to build an Enterprise or, or something like that? Oh, I can't answer that question. Can you ask me that? When, when's this going out? I'm going to try and get it out in the next few weeks, like you said. Yeah, you might need to have me back on in a couple of weeks. All right. Well, uh, in that <laughs> case, oh my. <laughs> we'll leave it at that for now. Yeah, that's where we have to leave that one. And by the way, folks, you know, I'm not just shilling today for the sake of shilling. The stuff that we were talking about today in terms of the new books just come out are legitimately that good. I definitely do give them a high recommend. Uh, we'll have links for all of that stuff in the show notes in the description below. Uh, but Ben, you personally, what is in your Star Trek collection? Books. Books, 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 uh, concept art, uh, oh, digital, digital files, mostly of concept art, but I am obsessive about concept art. I have the largest collection of concept, digitally at least, the largest concept, collection of concept art in the world for Star Trek. I have much, much more than CBS do. Um, Matt Jeffries gave me a folder of transparencies of all the stuff that he was just about to sell at auction. Um, I, I have, yeah, I just have hundreds, thousands of pieces of concept art. Um, that's a big, big thing for me. Uh, and then, yeah, books, I guess I've always wanted to, to know, to read. Um, and now I guess on the other end of it to share. How about in terms of hero collector products? Do you have any of your own stuff in your desk? No, 
Um, that's not quite true. I do, uh, but only because I've been looking at it. Um, I have it because it was here to be approved, but I don't. Uh, so I have, I have uh, Simon Centurion on my desk, who I looked at. I had to look at about six weeks ago, but I haven't removed him. He's still on the desk. Uh, we have some some cool new Marvel stuff that's coming out next year, which I'm not sure if we've announced, so I better not show it. Uh, <laughs> I have a bulk cube because we're looking at doing that again and want to make something much more fancy. I have, oh, one thing I do still have, we have, I have a, a, a figurine that we never made. So I have a 3D printed Species 8472 uh, from the original visual effects model. Oh, interesting. Is, are we allowed to take a look at that today or is that completely Yeah, I can, uh, well, it's in a box. Um, I don't want to take it out of the box. Um, the very, very few of these ever got made. Um, I don't know if you can, I'll try and do it so you're not getting the glare. I've got one I can take out, but I'm not sure where the box is. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so but no, I don't have a lot of toys. Um, I have a lot of information. That's basically why I have information. So as a Star Trek collector and being privy to all of these pieces of concept art, things like that, uh, as a toy hunter or as a collectibles hunter, let's just say, has there been a piece, a Holy Grail piece that has eluded you all your years that you've been trying to get your hands on? Oh, there are. Uh, yeah, I, there are things that I, I crave. Um, there's some missing concept art. So I know that there was stuff that was created and no one knows where it is. Um, so there's some stuff from Star Trek motion picture for that. Uh, there's lost stuff from the seventies. I'm fascinated by what we now call phase two and planet of the Titans. Um, and then there are a few pieces, uh, particularly, uh, Andy Probert stuff from season one of TNG. So basically what I have, I got from Andy. So if anybody's listening and has concept art, um, no one's going to beat you up for it, but we'd love to get a scan of it. Um, CBS, uh, you know, they don't have it, but we would love to just have copies of these things. So, yeah, anyone listening has stuff, find me on Twitter, come and message me, and I would love to get a copy. I will share. I can give stuff back in return. So, Ben, last question for the day. What is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? The people. That's the best thing. Is like, Particularly on the Voyager book, I just had such a lovely time talking to everybody. They're just really nice people um and a lot of the people are very talented people who you know some of whom i i can genuinely call friends so that's the real privilege of it all right well ben thank you so much today for talking to us all about hero collector all about books all about making the ships all about writing books uh really really good information today it's a lot of stuff i've actually wanted to know about the company and how things go how things work essentially for quite some time i sound like a pack led there how, how things go how you make ships go uh, but yeah, you know what I mean. So Ben, thank you so much for joining us here. I know it's it's a bit of a time difference. So appreciate you coming in, staying up late for me. Uh, hope we can do it again sometime. Uh, me too. It's a real pleasure. Thank you very much. And that was our chat with Ben Robinson, head of Hero Collector and well, an all around nice guy. There will be links in the show notes for all of the recently released Star Trek books from Eagle Moss that we talked about that have just come out for this holiday season, as well as links to some of Ben's other books and some of the Hero Collector starships. So if you're still in a pinch for a holiday gift for the Trekkie in your life, consider this your last chance to make things right, or as we should say, make it so. And by the way, remember that thing that Ben couldn't talk about in this interview? Well, it turns out that two days before this episode aired, some breaking news came from Hero Collector. And that was, in fact, basically what we had sort of alluded to in this interview. So Hero Collector announced on November 20th that they're going to be doing a Build the USS Enterprise D subscription program. 
And this is really cool. You can build a 27-inch Enterprise D from Star Trek Next Generation, just like they've already done with the DeLorean and the Ecto-1, and I think a James Bond car as well. This Enterprise D will be color-matched to the on-screen appearance of the ship. It's going to include decals. The saucer and star drive sections can actually be separated, which is pretty awesome. And there's going to be working internal lights as well, so you can illuminate the entire ship and all the parts in it. We're going to have links in the show notes for how you can get one of these for yourself and join the subscription program, which also will include the pricing. Now, I'm not much of a model builder, but working on that scale makes it feel like it's actually a little bit more approachable, despite the price tag that's going to be attached to it. And seeing the quality stuff that Hero Collector has already produced with diecast ships, I think this is going to be a surefire hit, so do not miss out on this Build the USS Enterprise D subscription program. We spent some time today discussing the starships that Hero Collector makes, and not surprisingly, some of the first official merchandise that Star Trek ever had was in fact based on the ships. AMT was the first company to create models for the original series back in 1966, starting with the Enterprise and then not long after, the Klingon Cruiser. After the show was initially cancelled, AMT continued to produce model kits and Star Trek props and were eventually acquired by Matchbox around the time of the motion pictures release. These days, collectors have plenty of choices for the size, look, and feel of whatever starship they want to collect, and companies like Hero Collector continue that tradition by listening to the fans and making some very awesome little ships which... By the way, I do in fact have several of. And after this discussion with Ben today, I look forward to growing my fleet even more. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. If you aren't already, please make sure you're following us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And if you'd like to watch the video version of this podcast when available, make sure to check out youtube.com slash nerdnews today. And don't forget you can also check out teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to check out all the Trek Untold merchandise we have or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash trekuntold. Any contribution you can make helps keep this ship running at optimum power. But even just listening to the show and telling your friends about it does a pretty big thing for us too. So please leave a rating and review if you're listening to this in the audio form, or give the video on YouTube a thumbs up and sub to the channel. There's no wrong way to help Trek Untold out, so whether you're just dropping a review, giving us ratings, or if you're able to offer us any support monetarily, we thank you so much for doing that. And we also thank you for, again, choosing to listen to Trek Untold. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, or ask to be booked as a guest on this show, or provide a sponsorship opportunity to Trek Untold, please email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on what you thought about this week's episode and our guest. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, this has been Trek Untold, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.